into the theology pit. Theology pit. You're falling in the theology pit. everybody welcome back to the theology pit this is theology out of pittsburgh of course and not like a bottomless pit because you know what we say when you fall into a bottomless pit you die of dehydration but this is the theology pit this is the place where we go whenever we want to discuss theological issues theological topics but we want to do it in much more of a um, I, I, I suppose an intellectual way, much more of an academic way. We really want to break down every little thing. We don't want to sit there and say uh, presuppositionally about certain subjects, okay? We don't want to assume that everybody has the same background, that everybody knows what you mean. When, when you say, you know, that the Bible is the word of God, well, what does that mean? As we've been exploring, everybody kind of sees it differently. When we say that the Bible is reliable, that it is inerrant, that it is infallible, do we know what all that means? I mean, we look at popular culture, whether it's within the church or outside of the church, it's a different opinion all around. And here in the Theology Pit, we want to kind of break that down. So if you do ever hear me saying something and I don't really explain it well enough or don't explain it well enough for your taste, you can go ahead and email me, uh, samson at samsonstick.com, or leave a message on Facebook on the Theology Pit. Um, or you can just go to the website samsonstick.com and you know get a hold of me through there. But... When talking about the Bible and talking about these different traditions, last week, you know, we talked about the regular fide, we talked about the sola ecclesia and the prima scriptura. And this week, we're going to be talking about um, sola scriptura and solo scriptura. And when it comes to Protestantism and when it comes to evangelicalism and it, when it comes from or to the uh, fundamentalist uh, viewpoints, um, of, of Christianity. When it comes to the form of Christianity that seems to be very popular, it seems to be the one that people like to beat up on, uh, whether they're inside the church or outside the church, you're kind of the, the butt of the jokes. And, you know, we kind of know why that is in a sense. But when we look at the way that Protestants view scripture, you could start to get an understanding of why, especially if they don't know what they believe, really. They're just, they're using the word, they're using the terms, but they don't quite understand what they're saying. Well, hang on for this theology pit. got our coffee going here we got our notes in front of us and we're ready to uh kick this thing off now what i want to do in talking about um solo scriptura i actually want to talk first about solo scriptura now solo scriptura with an a sola s-o-l-a this was the sort of the reformation battle cry okay it was the um it was ad fonts or ad fontes you know to the sources to the fountain the fountainhead of where everything springs from and if you remember back from the series if you listen to um on um 
salvation that I did. And we were going through that time period. You knew about, you know, all the turmoil that was going on in the world and people wanting to get back to the original sources. You had the scholastics and you had the humanists that were very uh, big into returning to those sources, not just with the Bible, but with, with, everything with uh, ancient Latin, with um, ancient Greek, with Koine Greek. Um, it was a, a real drive, a, I guess you could say a worldview shift in the value of education and that are the answers lie within the original sources, not in the changes that had occurred. So this concept of sola scriptura, which is loosely translated as the scripture alone, uh, has been with us for quite some time. And I would have to say that in in the totality of um, Christianity, uh, sola scriptura has always been, because it's always been an ath- appeal to authority. Where it kind of gets separate is when we bring in, you know, this, this concept of tradition that we've been talking about. And, it, you know, is it the authority as in authorities that we're going to, magisterial authority, or is it the authority of the scripture itself? And can we read the Bible on our own and actually read it the way it was intended to be written without any kind of instruction, without any kind of you know, theological teaching behind it? Well, that's kind of the question that we're answering here. Now, people would say, and this is kind of interesting on, on both sides, even the people that would say any type of authority, you're taking somebody else's interpretation. Um, so you can't do that. You have to just read it on your own and God will speak to you on your own. Well, technically that's an authoritative statement. And if you accept that, your methodology is then being based on a, a some kind of authority that you are accepting. Whereas the other side would um, say that you have to go by the understanding of those who came before you and the summarization of those who came before you is what we are conveying and that's what you have to abide by. They would say that if you're reading scripture and you think that you've come across something new and you can't find it anywhere in history that somebody else has had that that opinion, they would say there's a good chance that you're wrong. I would I would tend to agree with that, but that doesn't mean you're always wrong. Take a look at it and see if sometimes it could be as simple as what you're articulating. Okay, the way that you're articulating it. Perhaps the idea is always there. You've just found a new way to articulate it, a new way to make it clearer for people to understand. And if you've done that, then it's not so much that you've invented something new, but you've discovered something, something that's always been there, but you just have a better way of explaining it. And I would consider this to be progressive revelation um, or yeah, progressive understanding. I guess progressive revelation would be um, normally that term is is reserved for uh, scripture as a whole, that over time God has been revealing things through his word um, and, and through prophets and that it's been written down and you have this progressive revelation. And then after that period ended, um, when the, the, the last book of the New Testament, was written, 
from then on, we had a progressive understanding where we had all of these books, we had all these manuscripts, uh, and we're just trying to figure out, well, what do they say and what do they mean and how do they apply to our life? It's it's the orthodoxy, orthopraxy, orthopathy. It's that threefold um, understanding and what, you know, our attitude that we have towards it and, and how exactly do we relate with um, something like scripture, something that's written down, something that is, uh, in a sense, Static. It's concrete. It doesn't go anywhere. Um, you know, I've had people uh, say before. I, I've listened to lectures about um, you know textual criticism and the Bible, and some of them, in a way, would say, um, you know, don't tell me that the Bible says anything because it doesn't. I sit there and I, I listen to it. Okay, go ahead, speak, say something, and it doesn't speak, it doesn't say. I have to read it and I have to interpret it. Now, I think that that's a little bit um, you know, hyperbolic in a way. I don't think that you have to go that far. So you're just you know trying to be funny and um, over over literal for that sake. But in but in another sense, it actually does make a point. Um, how are you when whenever you read something, you're interpreting it through, you know, your worldview, your lenses, your experience. Um, you don't want to be a cultural bigot and, you know, just assume that, you know, your culture is the best and everything else is wrong and everything should be interpreted through your culture, no matter where it's from. But at the same time, you don't want to um, throw out any experiences that you've had, any prior revelations that you've been given or that you've gotten. Now, I also think that it's important for us to look at this and to recognize this within ourselves, that we have these predispositions of what the Bible is supposed to be like. So, when we come at this whole... Um, you know, sola scriptura aspect of it, that that is definitely going to come into play. Um, when you when you think that um, the the Bible is clear enough, and and the word that uh, Martin Luther used for it was, um, and the word that's generally used is the perspicuity of Scripture, and perspicuity ironically means clarity. So the Scripture is clear enough for people to read and understand that they can find salvation through it by reading it you can get the gist you can get the meta narrative you can get the understanding it's only when people approach scripture with a bias or with an axe to grind that it starts um, to get misinterpreted, okay? And sometimes it can be, uh, you know, not the fault of the reader, not the fault of the reader, if they've never been trained, if they don't know how to do that. Now, later on in this series, we're going to do a section on hermeneutics, which is the art and science of biblical interpretation. And we're going to look at um, how do people interpret the Bible? What methodology do they use? And, you know, what methodology did um, the Jewish people in the first century use? Did the apostles use? Um, what did they use through, you know, the, uh, the the Middle Ages? And, you know, what do they use today and the, the different ways? And I would say that just to touch on it really quickly, when it comes to this, this understanding of Sola Scriptura and churches that would claim to hold to this, the majority of people hold to what's called a reader response uh, form of 
of Bible interpretation, which is I open up the Bible, I read it, whatever it speaks to me and says to me, that's what it is. And maybe you've been in Bible studies like that, where you're looking at a particular passage or you're studying a particular book and you read something and then you go around the room saying, what does it mean to me? And if everybody can be relatively on the same page, well, then that's the interpretation of it. And I've been in rooms where people have done that, and then it comes around to me, and I'm like, well, you know, if we're reading like um, Galatians or something, I'm like, well, actually, Paul's saying this, and historically, this is what's going on, and this is what, you know, is is being conveyed, and what's understood, and, you know, here's what they're saying here, and blah, 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 and honestly, it really doesn't matter what it means to me. It matters what it means, and I try not to be that abrasive, but eh, it, sometimes it comes out like that. So, I want to talk, before I talk about the solo, the sola scriptura, S-O-L-A, I want to talk about the solo scriptura, S-O-L-O, because in talking with um, Roman Catholics, okay, which, you know, condemned the, the idea of justification by faith alone, along with sola scriptura at the Council of Trent, um, which was like the counter-reformation after the Reformation. So, that would be in like the, um, I think, late 16th century, maybe early 17th century. And uh, they had a, a, a response to it. And I've talked to a lot of Roman Catholics um, online, and I've asked them about Sola Scriptura and said, could you explain it to me? And the way that they've always explained it is as Solo Scriptura, okay? Um, they would say that Protestants mostly have a, you know, a paper pope is what it is, that the Bible is their pope, okay? Because the Roman Catholics come from a position of, they have an, an infallible book, the Bible, they have a an, another infallible source, which is the magisterial authority, and they have the the councils and you know the Holy Spirit working through them, so they can have an infallible collection of infallible books because they within um, the sola ecclesia they are the ones that you know, follow that. Uh, that tradition and, and and in saying that the two deposits of faith that we have, you know, scripture and tradition, uh, is uh, what is helping us to understand, and it's God doing that. So we can say that these are the books that God wants us to have, and we can be absolutely certain of it. Where Protestants would say we have a fallible collection of infallible books that it might not be all, you know, that number. But that's kind of where we leave it. So when you talk to them and you ask them about sola scriptura, tell me about sola scriptura. That what Protestants believe. They say, well, Protestants reject all tra- reject all tradition. They reject all history. They reject the church fathers. They reject the popes, and they reject everything except for their Bible, their version of the Bible. And they just sit down and interpret it however they want. And that's why you have you know a million different. Uh, Protestant denominations out there. I mean, when it comes to Roman Catholicism, how many do you have? Well, you they would say you only have one. Closer inspection, though, um, you would have one that calls itself Roman Catholic, but um, the churches and the believers within Roman Catholicism around the world do have different ideas, and their views are shaped differently culturally also. South American Roman Catholics are different than North American Roman Catholics, okay? So, that you know, has to be taken into account. You have um, 
I think, what is it, Leo the Tenth, um, Roman Catholics. So that would be people like uh, like Mel Gibson that would hold to it. Um, uh, Michael Voris, I think he's still uh, on the internet, like like doing some things and stuff. And uh, uh, I don't know what his um, his. Uh, parachurch organization is called, or I don't think it's a parachurch. It might be an apostolate. I'm not sure, but they are very much that way. Also, they are pre Vatican two. They don't really hold to what Vatican, you know, Vatican two said. And so you do have these different groups and this different minutia within the Roman Catholic church. So it's not as, um, universally concrete on all aspects. Okay, that that they're that they're portraying. Perhaps we could say that you know because of the division within Protestantism, it's a lot more honest in that sense. But then again, we we have where where all the Roman Catholic ones would have similarity in structure and everybody pointing towards the one pope um protestantism the similarity that it would have would be the the splintering and the individualistic aspect of it which is very popular in the united states of america because we are individuals that make up a a community make up a government make up you know states that make up a country and you know we we have things like no taxation without representation like we're big on like you know individual freedom and individualism so the definition of solo scriptura okay with the with the o is the belief that scripture is the sole basis and authority in the life of the christian tradition is useless and misleading the creeds and confessions are the result of man-made traditions okay so um just you know uh, a quick um, show note here i'm recording this when my family is home and my dog is awake so as you can hear you know probably in the background he is uh, seeing squirrels and other dogs and things and just has to protect everyone from them anyways um this view is held by fundamentalist churches people who would call themselves like fundamentalists and restoration churches um so um church of christ would be considered a restoration church. Now, a restoration church is a group that believes that the gospel was lost at some point in history, okay, generally after the death of the apostles, okay? And and the gospel is in the gospel message, not the gospel is in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but the gospel message itself. We had the writings, they were all preserved, God preserved them in spite of the way we were, but it wasn't until their churches came along, okay, in the late 19th century when they were generally established that through like the Great Awakening and uh, those sort of events, that that is when the gospel was restored, okay? And, and they consider themselves equal with the first century churches, okay? Smaller communities, not part of big organizations. And they would say that, you know, traditions are useless. I think disciples of Christ are, are in there also. Um, but they would say that um, they, they're useless. Some would go even so far as to say that whatever I have learned yesterday, 
that I have to like forget that because it will taint what I'm going to read and understand and learn today. And if I bring in those type of presuppositions, if I bring in that kind of attitude, then I'm actually squelching the Holy Spirit and I'm not letting him lead. Um, there, uh, I, I, I would want to say some Assembly of God churches, a lot of Pentecostal churches fall into this area, but uh, again, on closer examination, they tend to slip back into because they have their own tradition and that's their tradition and they hold to that tradition, but they don't call it tradition. It's like, um, you know, the Christians that say, I don't have a religion, I have a relationship and that's different. And it's, you know, I, 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 I tend to not argue with them. I'm just like, you know what, in, in scripture it says that, you know, our, our Christian faith is a religion and it, it says that, you know, if, um, you know, we don't uh, control our tongue then our religion's useless. I think that's in the book of James. But um, this is the concept that I think the majority of people who are either anti-theist or atheists understand scripture to be. They would say that there is no historical background to it. They interpret the Bible as the Bible. Um, I've even seen things where they don't even look to see if something that's written in the Bible, if they're, if they're quoting something, if they're trying to prove the Bible wrong, or, or you know, if they're trying to say the Bible is just obscene or crazy or you know just ridiculous, and they post something, they don't even look to see is it prescriptive or descriptive. In other words, is it describing an event that's going on at the time, or is it prescribing something that you're supposed to be doing today? They make no distinction between those two things. And they would say, well, it's the word of God. You say this is God's word. Here's what God says. You know, and by taking it out of context like that, they are in a way focusing on like a sola scriptura type thing because sola scriptoris view the Bible as being written to them. Okay. It's directly written to them. It is 66 love letters. And I use the number 66 because most Roman Catholics do not hold to that at all. And so they, you know, I won't, I won't use their number of books. It's only a particular small branch of Protestantism that gets a lot of exposure. And a lot of people, for some reason, like to put a camera in front of their face, mostly because um, these type of people, I mean, I don't I don't want this to sound you know too bad, but generally those type of people wouldn't be listening to a podcast like this anyways, but they are the most uneducated Christians that you'll ever run across, whether it comes from to the Bible, you know, they, as much as they read it, quote it and, and, and study it for their own, you know, uh, benefit, um, they do it in such a way that it, it negates the effects of it because of the way that they're approaching scripture. They're, they're in a way doing violence to it. And because of this, they are, they just, they're so uneducated about the history of scripture. They're uneducated about, um, interpretation. They're, um, uneducated about a vast majority of things. And to them there, if, if you disagree with them, then you disagree with God. 
that they are stating that I know I read the Bible. It says this. You can't tell me any different because that's what it says. And if you disagree with me, you're disagreeing with God. And, you know, to hear those kind of arguments, it's almost like, how do you approach somebody with that? Because let's say that somebody really wants to hammer on them and they get them to question their understanding of a passage that they previously held and they change it and then they start questioning themselves. Maybe maybe I was wrong about Christianity as a whole. Maybe the Bible's wrong because I have this understanding that the way that God set up the Bible for people to be able to read is to be able to understand it. I clearly don't understand it. Maybe there is no God. God's not really working for me. I know I'm, I'm going kind of far-fetched with that, but it's it's kind of that process. And these are the people that will have deconversion stories that you read uh, online. You know, people that have the same problem with, you know, the church. Like, they were brought up in the church, their their questions that they had were not answered, and so therefore there are no answers, and they're like, well, you know, at seven years old, I knew that it was all, Christianity was all crap, and, you know, I've never been a believer since. And it's like, really, you're, you're an adult now, you know, maybe in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and you're sitting there saying, that my understanding of religion, of Christianity, is equal with that of a seven-year-old. I mean, is that how you live your life? Really? You're just like, you live your life like a seven-year-old. You find counsel in second graders. That's that's your that's your idea of living your life. That's your idea of being enlightened, of being a free thinker, of being open to things. It's It's such a ridiculous concept. Now, Parallel with that, the Christian that has the exact same opinion and the exact same story. At seven years old, I started reading the Bible. It said this. Uh, my my church, uh, you know, they encouraged that. I you know kept doing it, and now you're coming along and trying to tell me something different. No, because even at seven years old, I could read that and I knew. And a seven year old reads that and knows. And it's like really, so you still interpret scripture like a seven year old, like a child, like someone in second grade. You know, um, grow up. You can question the Bible. You can question the stuff that's in it. God is big enough to handle your questions. He doesn't mind. If you read the Bible, you would see that he has sections in there saying, question me. Look at what I've done. I've proven myself. I've said things and I've brought them to pass. Okay. And when we get into the prophecy aspect of scripture, we're going to be going over some of those. And it's not going to be something where it's a self-fulfilling prophecy where, you know, uh, Muhammad was like, oh, God told me that, you know, I would return to Mecca and I prophesied that. And then he goes to Mecca. Yeah, it's that's a self-fulfilling prophecy. That that would be like uh, you can know that I am a prophet because I have recorded 12 podcasts on the Bible. And when I do that, then I am a prophet and it's done or, you know, 14, what am I on? Like number 13 or 14 or something here. But, um, you know, if I, if I say, okay, well, I'm, you know, if I do 14 of them, then that proves that I'm a prophet. No, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. We're going to talk about prophecy where it was written down and things unfolded over the years and, and not over a couple years. We're talking hundreds of years, things that could not have been put back in there. And we're going to, you know, look at that and say, that's what a prophecy is supposed to be. Okay. Here's the idea of it. But, um, when you refuse to change or to understand or to grow, 
And it's just, you're like, well, the Bible says that I believe it, that settles it type thing. It's like, it does, does the Bible really say that? In, in, in the commandments, the third commandment is taking the Lord's name in vain. What that's saying is don't say that God has said something he didn't say. And with scripture, we want to be very careful with that. Now, people who are so low scriptoris, this is the trap that they fall into. Okay. Now, it, it some, and that's with the people that remain Orthodox, the people that remain Christians. A lot of times you get people, they're not Christians, but they would consider themselves Christians. And what do I mean by that? Well, Christianity is a certain set of beliefs. One of those beliefs is that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, that that is a sine qua non within Christianity, a without which not. If you do not have this, then you are not that. And if you do not believe that Jesus Christ is God in flesh, okay, then you are not a Christian. Call yourself what you want, but you're not a Christian. Christianity has a certain, the word has a connotation to it. And this particular connotation has certain elements to these aspects. Now, what makes someone a Christian, what makes someone saved, what makes someone orthodox, what makes somebody within the orthodox camp, the orthodox circle, whether they're heretical or not, those can get, you know, to be some gray areas when you really start getting out there, but there are certain aspects of it that are not up for debate. Okay. You can't be a Christian and say that there is no God. You can't be an atheist Christian believing that there is a God, a, a theistic understanding and actually a monotheistic Trinitarian understanding is one that we would state is what you need to be a Christian. Okay. If you don't have that, depending on you know the 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 severity of the heresy and 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 what it is, you might not be considered a Christian or wouldn't be considered a Christian. Okay, so you can't call yourself one. Mormons call themselves Christians. Okay, uh, but they're not Christians. They don't believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh in the way that we're articulating it as Christians. They believe that Mother God and Father God had spirit babies. One of them was Jesus. One of them was Lucifer. And then they had a whole bunch of others. And you know there was a war in heaven and an argument over who would save humanity. And you know they believe that you know if you're a good Mormon and do all the Mormony things, and you know I'm being you know just facetious with that. But then you get to go to heaven and have your own, um, you know, wife, your, your polygamy of wives, and you get to then get your own planet and have spirit babies. And you're the God over it because they say as man is God once was, that is really, really different from what Christians hold to and why they wouldn't be considered a Christian. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. Okay, so we start to move on to... um the concept from there to sola scriptura with the A in it. And I, I think that when talking about solo scriptura with the O, 
um, before the break there, you, you kind of get that impression that, Hey, yeah, you know what? The majority of people that I run into really do think and act like that, that, you know, it's, it's, it's just completely problematic. Um, Alexander Campbell, of uh, the the founder of the Disciples of Christ Church, says that I have endeavored to read the scriptures as though no one has read them before me, and I am as much on my guard against reading them today through the medium of my own views yesterday or a week ago as I am against being influenced by any foreign name, authority system, whatever. Okay, so... There, for them, there's one deposit of faith, and that the scripture is the written, infallible tradition, and it's the only thing that they rely on. That's it, even though technically, as we're going to see, they rely on you know a lot of their tradition. But sola scriptura, this is the belief that scripture is the final and only infallible authority for the Christian in all matters of faith and practice, okay? Different from Prima Scriptura. Prima Scriptura would say there are other infallible authorities, but Scripture is the primary one that we should check everything against because of its static nature, where the Sola Scriptorist would say, no, there are no other infallible authorities at all, nothing. It is Scripture alone, and that's it. That has the infallible authority. Now, they view tradition as extremely helpful, okay? That they would hold to that there is an unwritten tradition and it's the summary of the gospel, but that that can be fallible because it's changed over time. And if you went through the Salvation series with me, you could get a very clear understanding of that, that the ideas that were being put forth on what it means that Christ died for us, the the, the crucifixion, the resurrection, uh, what that meaning was, one of the most central important things in all of Christianity, and yet there are differing views on how it's applied to us. You would think that if that was the number one most important thing uh, for God to convey, um, that it would have been perfectly understood. But it's not. It took time. It took a progressive understanding in order for us to you know, come to um, the knowledge of the the fact that um, God's grace was imputed to us, okay? That it's a forensic declaration, okay? Rather than it's imputed into us and it's a sanative understanding that something pours into us and changes us. And if you want more clarification on that, I recommend my you know, entire series on salvation there for the aspect of justification. But... Um, that this gospel message, because it wasn't clearly articulated and it's still not clearly articulated or fully understood, that that then is different than something like a written uh, tradition, which is clearly written down for us to understand, for us to read. And so, with this concept of sola scriptura, they would say that tradition is 
very, very, very important. You need to read the scriptures Christianly. A lot of churches that would be more mainline Protestant churches, um, Lutherans, Anglicans, Presbyterians, even uh, some Methodists and some Baptists would definitely hold to a sola scriptura, which includes uh, tradition. It includes a type of magisterial authority. It includes people through the years thinking about stuff, talking about stuff, and that the early church fathers and the writings of um, apologists through the years are extremely important for us to understand and for us to hold to. Because of this, we need to learn how to read the Bible and how to study it, how to understand it. And this is why we have Bible studies. This is why we uh, teach people what things mean that, you know, now, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. What does that imply? What does that mean? That you must be born again. What does that mean? These are all concepts that need to be fleshed out using tradition. And it gets into the prima scriptura realm a little bit whenever they start being treated on par with scripture because they would say that it is a it's a summary but the summary is backed up by scripture so it should carry the same kind of influence as scripture but not the same kind of weight for example to to clear that up a little bit it would be that you can go back to the scripture if you're arguing against the summary but if you're arguing against the summary, you can't go back to a summary for it. So let's say that you have a church that holds to, you know, like a couple different things. Um, let's just take like a large catechism and a confession. Okay. So within Presbyterianism, you have the Westminster Confession and you have the large catechism. In Anglicanism, you would have the Book of Common Prayer, um, which would be their um, their confessional statement long, and with their catechism also. Uh, Lutherans, you would have um, like the Formula of Concord, which, you know, would include their, their confession as well as their catechism. These are all kind of two... Um, I, I would say separate poles, separate branches uh, within these um, within these faiths. Now, if you were to say I disagree with um, this particular part of the confession, and they would say, "Okay, why do you disagree with it? Why do you think that it's wrong?" And you went and you tried to use the smaller or the larger catechism to say the smaller larger catechism says this, and therefore that is wrong. When their confession is built off of scripture, because generally any confession that you read um, that's been put together well enough um, for you with with references. Every aspect of it will have a scripture reference to it to say this confession, this part of it is backed up with scripture. Um, and the catechism might have the same thing, but generally it doesn't. It's more of a didactic uh, approach. It's more of a teaching aid, kind of a question and answer type thing. It's, it's, it's used for, um, for study and for uh, indoctrination, mostly, as, as well as uh, education. 
So if you were to come at them with nothing but references to the catechism, they would say, no, that doesn't hold weight. It has influence, but not weight. So we're not going to entertain changing something that because of the wording over here in this, we're not going to change that. Where scripture does have the weight. If you said, you know, in scripture, it says this. And so the way that you're articulating something, it's actually being understood in a wrong sense. I know what you were trying to say. I know what you're trying to go for. Or this is wrong altogether because scripture interpreted in this way says this sort of thing. And it's not, it's never that cut and dry, of course, but um, that's the difference between the influence and the weight. So they would both be held, you know, up equally. But a lot of times, um, if you're in these churches, you, it seems that the confession can hold the same weight wrongly, but it still can, uh, with, especially if nobody's challenging it, you know, within these, uh, within these denominations. And I've sat in classes as a, as a Presbyterian, a member of a Presbyterian church. I sat within classes where people have held the Westminster Confession up and used it more often than they're using scripture because they find it to be a really good summary. And it's a decent summary. I'm not saying that it's, it's, it's a totally awful one. I mean, I don't, I don't mind it. It's not my favorite. I'll just put it like that. And so whenever we talk about sola scriptura, this is what we're talking about, that you are reading and interpreting scripture with the aid of tradition Okay, tradition is not what is dictating to you what you should believe. It's stating what you ought to believe because of the evidence. And here's where we got it from. Do the research yourself. Look into it yourself. If you're questioning, hey, how did we come up with this idea of the Bible being, you know, infallible? Or how did we come up with this concept of uh, justification, you know? How did we come up with this concept that, you know, um, Protestants shouldn't marry uh, Roman Catholics because Roman Catholics are idol worshipers? Well, they would have all of the scripture references in there that you can go back to and then you can challenge them based on scripture and not just based on their opinion. Okay. Is it clear how this is different from what a Roman Catholic perspective would be? Okay, and if it's not, let me spend a couple minutes talking about the sola ecclesia view again and and how it would be different. The sola ecclesia view, which is the church alone, the Roman Catholics would hold to, again, is a an infallible declaration of what it says. For example, you could just get a missional, or you could get a devotional, or something of you know of that, and you could just study that. Because somebody has interpreted the Bible for you and they've put it in the common vernacular. They've put it in the most important ways. It's sort of like the cliff notes of of the Bible and of Christianity and the way that you're to behave. And so, you know, if someone says to you, well, what does it, how do you know that Christ's death on the cross applies to you or that it, it matters to you at all or that, you know, it's, it, it's, 
something that's for you and not something for somebody else or something for them. They would then be able to go to their, um, you know, the, 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 their catechism. Okay. They'd be able to go to their summaries. They'd be able to go to the, well, here's why this is what it says. Okay. Uh, where do you get that from? Well, they got it from, you know, scripture. They got it from the apostles. They got it from the church fathers. They've got it through all of tradition. The Pope states that we have all of this authority behind us that gives me the summary. So that summary is scripture. It's inspired and we can believe it and we can trust in it. And if you say, well, I disagree with that, they would say, okay, you disagree with it. Who are you? By what authority do you disagree with this? Who comes, you know, uh, whose shoulders do you stand on to say that this is wrong? Because we stand on the, on the shoulders of the apostles whom Christ himself appointed over his church. He said to, to Peter, I give you the keys to the kingdom. I think it's in Matthew 16. And upon this rock, I will build my church. And that rock is Peter. And we have this uh, succession of popes from Peter and this teaching that Christ established. And they are telling me that the Bible says this, you have what? The Bible? You mean the Bible that we preserve, the Bible that we, you know, put together, the Bible that we understand, the Bible that we have that you just got a hold of one day and thinking that you have all of the knowledge of everybody and you can understand something in the New Testament that was written 2,000 years ago in a different language, in a different culture? Do you speak Greek? Do you understand Greek? No, you don't. You just have what? What kind of translation? Some some kind of translation that somebody came up with? Who came up with that translation? Okay, you don't even know. So it's not even an authorized translation. It's not even somebody who's a scholar that's that's maybe a, a, a cardinal, okay, or a um, you know, a, a a doctor of theology or anybody like that, or anybody that you know they've spent their lives, okay, forsaking family, forsaking everything to you know, to work for God, to work for the church, to come up with this translation, you know, for us to read. And where does yours come from? You don't even know where your Bible comes from. So by what authority do you say that what I'm saying is wrong? Because to disagree with me is to disagree with 2,000 years of church history and of teaching. And, you know, this is, um, to be honest, it's, it's, it's an argumentum ad populum or, you know, an argument, argument from appeal from authority to say that, this person, because they agree with what these people say, that by you disagreeing with them, you disagree with every single thing that has ever been said in all of Christendom. Um, that that it's it's a ridiculous statement, but that is sola ecclesia that the church has spoken. And who are you? to then question that and come against that. Honestly, that's what Martin Luther was coming against. He was coming against the church, coming against the whole world. Like nobody was really, you know, at that time speaking out like this. I mean, there were a few before him. I mean, you know, Erasmus had his questioning and his doubts, um, you know, uh, Wycliffe, um, Hans, uh, you had, you know, the Moravian Reformation. You had, you know, a lot of different things like that and stuff. But really at that point, it was just kind of, you know, Luther against the world, uh, you know, sort of like Athanasius, you know, Athanasius against the world um, when, when it came to holding of the Trinity. So, sola scriptura, 
uses tradition in, in, in a different way than a sola ecclesia would hold to it. Or a prima scriptura, because a prima scriptura would be along those lines, but they would say that if you question tradition with a prima scriptura person, a prima scriptura person would say, where is it in the Bible that you are questioning? Because they use the Bible as the primary source. And if you could show that the Bible states that this tradition is wrong, in a prima scriptura world, then they would say, well, hey, you might be right there. This might not be real tradition that I hold to. And I'll abandon that because true tradition stands in line with scripture. So if you can look through history and you can look through the tradition and say, I think this is wrong. The Bible says this. This is how we should understand that. And those people over there might be wrong in history. A prima scriptura person would look at that and say, hey, you know what? I think you're right. That's not true tradition. That might go along with church history or something like that, but that's not the infallible tradition that we hold to. And actually, your summary, we can put this in there. And that, because it lines up with scripture, if we hold to it, that can become true tradition. Okay, it's it's an ongoing process of how God is speaking. If it's through the councils, if it's through whatever, that's prima scriptura. Sola scriptura is we can have lots of summaries everywhere and, you know, they can be used to influence how we read and how we study, but they don't have the same weight as scripture holds to. So sola scriptura is a little bit more fluid and i think that it is the most practical way that protestantism whether they hold to a solo scriptura view or not if they articulate their view of scripture as solo scriptura but tradition comes in so much like you look at like the pentecostal church okay Pentecostals do a lot of things that people would consider crazy, speaking in tongues, slain in the spirit, uh, miraculous healings, like all kinds of stuff like that, you know, and you can question them on that and, and, you know, they would be very solo scriptura and they would say, no, this is from the Bible. That's why we see those things, speaking in tongues, that sort of things. And you say, where do you get this whole slain in the spirit thing? This whole thing of people falling down and and that sort of stuff. Whenever I was in a charismatic Pentecostal church for three years, one of the reasons why I had to leave was because of my questioning of this whole slain in spirit thing. And the booklets that they would give me on it, because they didn't do the research themselves, they took it from someone else. It was a magisterial authority. They were actually behaving in a very sola scriptura way. And Whenever I was able to challenge that and I was able to challenge this, you know, whole, um, you know, uh, demon possession thing and all that stuff and, and, but especially on slain in the spirit and I, and I challenged it, it was then confessed to me after I pushed far enough in private with the pastor, he said, look, it's just, you know, this is just old school. This is our tradition. And I'm like, well, I thought we didn't go by tradition because it was always articulated as solo scriptura. It was always placed that, you know, upon this rock, I will build my church. And that rock was the foundation of the church found in scripture. And it was scripture, solo scriptura. That's what we could follow. But when push came to shove on things that were clearly not found in the Bible, like slain in the spirit, they reverted to a sola scriptura understanding of, well, we have tradition that helps us to interpret scripture 
And because of that interpretation, that that tradition, that that is how we understand and interpret the Bible. And I'm like, well, that's that's wrong because it's inconsistent with the confession of the church, number one. And number two, it's wrong because it's not found in there. And it was that type of questioning that caused the tension that I immediately noticed in, in which I had to... Um, which I had to leave. And, you know, it was, a, it was a sad day. It was difficult because you, you know, I mean, it's, it's your church body. It's a small church and, you know, you love those people. It was, it was like going through a divorce in a way and you're just kind of in a free fall and you just didn't know what to do, but just kind of hold on, you know. And if you're a immature Christian who finds yourself in a situation like that, or in a church like that, you don't know what to turn to. I mean, there's really two ways you can go. Number one, you can get get rid of religion altogether in your life, get rid of church altogether in your life, just walk away from it, dismiss it. It's very easy to get pessimistic and find um, really bad websites, really bad atheist websites that prey on you know uh, people within a sola scriptura environment because... That's all they have to do is just show that one part of the Bible doesn't fit with your preconceived notions or even their preconceived notions. I've actually had, you know, atheists that are very immature and very bad atheists um, say things to me that this is the way I should interpret scripture. And I'm like, you're an atheist don't tell me how I should interpret scripture. I, you know, I, I've taught courses on hermeneutics and on different interpretive methods. I know many different ones. Okay. And what I'm telling you is that yours is not accurate. And they would say, well, if you disagree with me, you disagree with all science. And I've, I just, I don't get that. I don't get how my disagreeing with the way I should be as a Christian understanding the Bible and then excludes me from like the understanding of all like modern natural sciences and cosmology that I'm ignoring all that, that I'm rejecting all of that. It's ridiculous. It's, it's really like, you know, arguing with a, a Muslim, um, within, you know, about like Christianity. And they would say that, you know, um, Christians believe in the Gnostic Gospels, because the Quran says what Christians believe, and that Christians believe in you know the Gospel of Thomas that when Jesus was a child and he would make you know birds out of clay and you know command them to become alive and you know do all that stuff. That you know, those are the things that Christians believe. And if you say I don't believe that, and they would say, well, you're not a true Christian. It's like, well, who are you to say that I'm not a true Christian? Well, because the Quran says that this is what Christians believe. Well, the Quran's wrong. Oh, no, no, the Quran's not wrong. Then, you know, you are an infidel and you've insulted Islam and you must die. You know, it's, it's sort of like that. It's that we've come up with a caricature, with a straw man of what Christianity is and what Christians should believe and what they should think about their Bible. And if you don't believe that, then you are not a Christian. Okay. 
because we say it. And if you do say, oh yeah, well, I'm a Christian. Yeah, of course I believe that. Then they've just set up the straw man that they could easily knock down. And atheists tend to go in the same way. They would say, Christians say this. Now, some atheists, those are immature atheists. Some atheists are a little more mature. They don't walk into those realms at all because they know that it's a losing battle, that they would lose because they're smart enough to have studied these things and know that, you know, they're in the wrong. And I've listened to, you know, atheist podcasts where, you know, they would have an atheist come on and like, you know, beat up uh, a theological position of, of Christians. And, you know, one atheist would say, well, you know, I don't want to get emails from, you know, Christians that say, actually, Christians don't believe that they actually believe this. And then they do a very poor job in articulating a Christian doctrine. Maybe even, uh, they do a good job articulating part of it, uh, but they leave out key aspects of it. And then, you know, just make fun of Christianity in, in that aspect. But rarely do I ever hear somebody accurately representing a position and then saying why they find fault in it. And that's what I've always said. And especially when it comes to understanding your personal traditions that you hold and recognizing that, how do I view a scripture? Um, you know, as an anti-theist, as an atheist, I have a certain presupposition in a certain way that I approach the Bible as a Roman Catholic, as an uh, Orthodox uh, Orthodox Christian, Eastern Orthodox. I have a certain aspect and a certain way that I look at Scripture um, as a as a Protestant, whether I'm. Lutheran, uh, Anglican, uh, Presbyterian, Methodist, how, whichever one you want, recognize what you have, you know, as a, as a, uh, Pentecostal, as a restorationist, as a fundamentalist, I have a certain view of scripture and I need to recognize that because if I'm talking to somebody else about it, and I've always said this to atheists, and this is always my challenge that's gone out to them. If you can accurately articulate what I believe and why, then I will listen to you tell me why it's wrong. If you just, if you can't do that, if you have straw man arguments, if you say, I'm supposed to believe it this way, and I'm like, well, no, I'm not. And then your argument is, well, then, you know, that, well, that's what Christians believe, and you should believe that, or you're just wrong, and you disagree with every, and it's like, well, no, that, that's wrong. I've spoken with Roman Catholics and, you know, I've, I've had discussions with them where we would spend the first hour, I would talk to them like a Roman Catholic, Roman Catholic doctrine, um, their uh, understanding of the atonement, how it's to be applied, uh, transubstantiation, veneration of the saints, um, you know, uh, baptism, you know, paedo-baptism, everything. I would just totally... Under, you know, show them, I completely understand and can articulate what you believe. I can even defend it and I can show where and I can show how. And I get them to a point that they say, why aren't you a Roman Catholic? I would love an atheist to be able to do that. I would love an atheist to be able to explain Christianity, to explain my faith to me and, and explain it perfectly and defend it to the point where I said, wait a minute, you're an atheist? Why are you an atheist? Then I'm willing to to listen because I understand that you totally understand my point of view. So where is the rub? Where is it that you you don't believe? I've never had that happen. That has never, ever, ever occurred to me in the 17 or 18 years that I've been doing this and the majority of the, you know, uh, more than a decade that I've been doing this sort of stuff online 
and I've been putting things out there, never once as an atheist ever, ever been able to do that. And I found that to be incredible because I've been able to articulate atheism. I've been able to uh, find its flaws, find its parts. I've given lectures on it. I've read, I whenever I gave a lecture on atheism, I went online to atheists that I knew and say, what books do I need to read? What are the best ones? What ones, you know, defend atheism, articulate atheism, destroy Christianity, everything. And I was let down every time. That lecture is online. You can find it. I do hear the music. Hey, thank you for listening to Theology Pit. Be sure to follow us on Facebook. Uh, Subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And now it's time to close down the pit. Thank you. Thank you.